Hey everybody, it's Ryan Rotella for a long delayed episode of What Do You Want to Be When You Grow Up? Graham and I have been super busy these past several months. Graham has been working at her job hard to help uh, convince a lot of state legislatures to move to renewable energy. God bless her. You know, I, <laughs> I don't know if I could do that. Um, kind of nose to the grindstone kind of thing. Though um, I guess I will soon because I've been applying to a a lot of different jobs, um, been in some interviews, so I might be moving soon. So, yeah, been really busy, but hopefully soon we can uh, put out some more episodes regularly and, uh, yeah, give a, give everybody who wants to listen a show. So, to contextualize what I'm about to talk about, um, which is I took an aptitude test, um, figured out what my aptitudes are, what I'm a natural at, and what I should be doing with my life, <laughs> according to uh, the Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation. Yeah, I wanted to uh, put in the context kind of what I've been going through and what led me to decide to actually take this uh, $800 test. So my life's been pretty tumultuous uh, the past couple months, and I've stared the question in the face, what are you going to be when you grow up? And Literally, I've stared at our podcast's facebook page wondering uh, why i haven't done anything for the past couple months um nor gotten more views probably because most people are saying and don't listen to podcasts i'm sorry for whomever is listening i appreciate you very much um but more importantly in like the metaphorical sense i've been in a fog of where to go what to do and what i'm capable of you know what i'm even good at um of course, I've been fortunate enough to travel, see friends, spend time with my family, and make a buck here or there pretty easily. Um, I've been working as an AV technician, short for audio-visual technician. I've pretty much been a stagehand setting up uh, corporate events um, and speakers and projectors and all that stuff. And it wasn't hard to get. Um, a friend of the family runs it, so I've just been doing that in the meantime. But... Uh, doing all that I realized how unskilled I am at like the most basic menial tasks you know fumbling with how to wrap cables and fold drape um, like slowly improving over repeating these tasks like every single day um, okay maybe they're not the most basic um, but you know that's to say I hadn't poured time into ever really working with my hands um, you know I built sets in college but and in high school some but like other than that I've never been good at tying knots or really, um, you know, climbing trees or anything of that kind of mechanical nature. I don't know why I said climbing trees, but you know, I just think of hands. But anyway, it's safe to say I won't spend much more time doing uh, kind of menial labor or setting up uh, speakers as a career. Um, but you never know. It's good to know that, I think, and it's valuable to know I'm not good at that. Um, what I used, to, what I am, 
good at, I thought, was uh, intellectual and creative work. Um, I don't only say I thought because it's been so long since I've done it. You know, it's going to be two years since I've graduated really soon from college, and it's going to be a few months, uh, half a year since I've last directed a, a play or acted in a play or like written anything creatively. And as more time passes between doing like those things that I've included in my definition of myself and like not doing any studying or reading or creating, I've been doing some reading actually. Um, but I feel myself destabilize and wonder, you know, what am I good at? Because a substantial part of whom you are is what you do, the choices you make and how your time is spent. Um, and I've spent a lot of my time the past couple months just uh, waiting uh, since my sister got diagnosed with cancer in March. Um, her chemo got done in December, but it was eight rounds of uh, week-long inpatient chemo, which means we sp- my sister had to spend a week in a hospital at a time, eight times for about a couple months. So that's a lot of waiting. <laughs> that's a lot of waiting to get better and waiting to just... Um, get through it all and as you're waiting you can feel physically kind of time you know add inches to my waist and you know um (laughs) I guess more uh stretch marks or uh stress marks I should say um but yeah I just uh it's been really hard to find constancy in that I guess in this really weird state of going in and out of a hospital um, yeah, I haven't really studied. I haven't really like practiced any art. I haven't gone to school at all. It's usually just been go to the hospital, go home, go to work. Um, and you know, and there's not, I haven't really found the time to do anything. Um, and yeah, I'm sorry if I keep stressing time. Um, you know, cancer reminds you, or any kind of chronic disease reminds you, or serious illness, I should say, it reminds you how precarious and precious time really is, you know, not just in mortality, but in the waiting that I mentioned, you know, you wait, um, in this kind of not well-furnished room <laughs> that, uh, my family made furnished, made it a point to do that, but you had to wait for the chemo to be over, you had to wait, um, in the room, week at a time, you had to wait for, um, cancer to just go away, you know, if it ever goes away, really. Um, you have to wait to have time to be able to do stuff that you want to do. And you, you just do a lot of thinking about waiting or you, or you wait to think about, um, you know, what is, what's on the outside of the hospital walls. And, you know, my sister's still in recovery and recovery means waiting before you can really do anything you really want to do. You know, I broke my ankle one time and I just had to look at my friends, um, strutting around going to um, birthday parties and doing everything and I would just be sitting uh, in the room not really being able to uh, move around or do anything Um, but you do have to find a way to enjoy what it is right now because there isn't enough time you know there's no certain that everything no certainty that everything's going to be okay and that you had the permission to finally do what you want Um, and you don't know that what you try or want to do will succeed or, you know, you're even capable of it yet, that you have to get better, you have to fail to improve, make time for failing and improving, but again, you know, where is the time, you know, that 
isn't there right now. You're busy, but you have to make it. And sorry for, you know, kind of being a downer, but this is all to say that I discovered, you know, some of it, what I just said wasn't true. Um, you know, that search for constancy led me to find some certainty in uh, the aptitude test I took. I heard from a family friend that their friend took this series of tests at the Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation. And these tests are designed to score your aptitudes, you know, what you're naturally good at, you know, without practice, uh, any kind of conditioning or nurturing. Um, their friend had wanted to be a surgeon, my family friend's friend wanted to be a surgeon, but through these tests I found out uh, she didn't have the finger dexterity to hold a scalpel or any kind of surgical tool. <laughs> so, you know, you need to have a steady hand in to perform surgery. You know, I can also cross that off my list. Um, but anyway, I decided to register for this $800 test, which my mom admittedly paid for and brought to my attention. So thank you again, mom, for everything, as always. I went to Atlanta, crashed on some friends' couches, uh, thanks Scotty, Thompson, Jake, and I took the test. I signed up to a whole eight hours worth of testing in one day. The person I made the appointment with said it didn't matter if it was one day or two days, but... Naturally, I went in the testing facility sleep-deprived, but, you know, pretty hopeful, but kind of skeptical. You know, I had no idea if this test would work or tell me anything helpful or new. Um, I just showed up to the waiting room. The proctor got me in, led me to this really small cubicle-like room with a TV screen, headphones, paper, pencil, and nothing else, really. Um... She spent a lot of time defining what an aptitude was in their terms, like an ability that is innate, that you're naturally skilled at or don't take a lot of time to learn or acquire. Um, she explained how the Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation has these, uh, what they call games, you know, the tests that um, test your aptitude through use of each aptitude by applying it. They had 28 tests, seven for each of the four sessions, which approximately took two hours with a few breaks and an hour lunch break spread out so i started right away the first test stacked on top of all the following tests asked me to write anything legible as fast as i could for five minutes without stopping so i wrote an answer to the prompt they gave what would the world look like without words if i remember that correctly i just wrote a bunch pretty sure i mentioned toilets wouldn't exist without words you know test designers really made sure to leave off lead off with the the huge physical and mental stimulus <laughs> in the morning uh, moreover, each test really did test me in a different way, and there was a wide range of simple tasks, from writing as many items in a category within two minutes as fast as I could, to memorizing words and charts on the screen, to building a wiggly block as quick as, quickly as possible, to memorizing sounds and testing my grip strength for each hand. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, I had two proctors in two sessions where they had to administer tests, such as randomizing numbers for me to do basic arithmetic, or interviewing me via psychoanalytic free association. They say a word, I respond with the first word that comes to mind. By the end of it all, imaginably, um, or understandably I should say, has kind of worn out. Even though the tests were in no way academic or even intellectual. On the other hand, most of the tests required me to do stuff quickly within a short time limit. Even on the tests that didn't have a formal time limit, I, I felt the pressure to finish the task as quickly as possible. And I kept doing that. Uh, but I really felt the limits of that going that quickly and my brain going that quickly for so long. So by the end of it, I was uh, worn out, but, you know, also still rating, you know, which test I thought I did well at. 
um, not knowing what their standard for good even was. Um, I knew I was not good at the building section, you know, that wiggly block I mentioned, or memorizing a pattern visually. But I was really curious to see what, you know, I was good at. <laughs> um, so the next day, I had my test results session. It was a whole two hours blocked out to analyze my results with one of the researchers. I happened to graduate from Davidson. Meredith Burke Hammonds, the assistant director. Um, she even agreed to do this interview for the little podcast I got going right now that you're listening to. Um, they also encouraged me to bring someone to the results session, someone I've known for a while who could verify stuff they've noticed. But I didn't really know that going into this trip. Um, but I managed to get my friend Scotty posted, I mentioned earlier, who's a good friend and fellow Davidson grad, to come along and ask some questions as well. So without further ado, here's my interview with Meredith Burke Hammonds, the assistant director of the Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation Atlanta branch. talking about those things I think you need to find an outlet for. Okay. High scores, low scores that are assets. As I do that, some of the careers I mention may or may not be things you're interested in doing. It's really to illustrate where the aptitude is used most often. Okay. After we go through all the results and take a look at how they all fit together, we'll take a look at your interest survey, brainstorm with you on some different ways to use your aptitudes in the field you're interested in. Any questions? No, that sounds good. All right. Drum roll. This is what our aptitude test told us about you. A little bit about how it's arranged. The name of the test is on the left side, and some of those are words we made up. So there's a little bit more description in parentheses as to what that's measuring. Mm -hmm. The next column's the form number. It doesn't mean anything to you. It's relevant to us, to our research department, to know which version of which test you took. The next column's the raw score. Depending on the test, that could be the number of pins you picked up, the number of words you wrote down, the number of seconds it took you to do something. By itself, the raw score doesn't mean a whole lot. Mm -hmm. We compare that with other people in your age range to get the percentile number. Percentile is the number of people out of 100 that you scored as high or higher than. So high scores are 70th percentile or higher. So anything that touches that line um, and goes across it is a high score. And it doesn't really matter whether it's 99th or 70th. If it's a high score, it's a high score. It's mm -hmm. creating an influence on you. Low scores are 30th percentile or lower. You don't have a whole lot of those for us to talk about. And the one in the group in structural visualization is an asset in the right direction. So we will talk about why when we get to that specific test. Okay. Average scores are the ones that fall in the middle. Those are tools in your toolbox. You can certainly do those things about as easily and enjoy them about as much as most other people. You're going to feel compelled to do them in the same way you do the high scores or the low scores that are assets. Any questions about how this is laid out before I start talking about the individual tests? I think I don't have any questions right now, but um, yeah, I'd be interested to see how these feed into the specific uh, categories that were yeah. set up in the career inventory. But okay. yeah, I think yeah. that's probably farther ahead. Yep, that is farther ahead. So yeah, let's right. keep going. All right. The, I'm going to start at the top with Graphoria. That was the test with two columns of numbers. You had to go through and mark the ones that were the same. Mm -hmm. We used to call that the paperwork aptitude. Now it's more computer work but it's how fast you process visual information necessary for routine clerical tasks, filling out forms, filing, et cetera. 
Scoring high in that does not mean you want to sit around <laughs> doing routine clerical tasks all day. Right. It means if it's part of your job, it's not going to slow you down or feel like a burden to you. Mm -hmm. It has helped you as a student your entire life because you can get through all the problem sets and reading assignments, etc. You use it every day, balancing your bank account, filling out forms at the doctor's office, it, you know, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. You don't really need to look for an outlet for it. It basically just makes your life easier. Two things for you to think about with that score that high. One is if you ever have an assistant who's doing all your clerical work for you, it's helpful if that person would also score high, whether they've taken these tests or not, because otherwise you'll be tempted to grab it from them and do it yourself, rather than doing something that's more interesting. Also, if you're ever teaching or training or supervising other people, it might take them as much as four or five times longer than it takes you not because they're slacking off, not because they don't understand how to do it, but because they literally just don't process it as quickly. So be patient with those people. Mm -hmm. If you're ever teaching like quadruple the amount of time it would take you and assume that's how long it's gonna take everybody else. Questions about that? No, I was gonna ask like, um, yeah, how do you kind of express a passion or like fit that to a passion, but it is kind of applicable just to- Yeah, exactly, you just, you know, it's helpful in sight reading, you know, it's basically, it's one of those things that you just, if you have it, you don't think about it. If you don't have it, you have to come up with strategies to get around it. Any other questions? All right. Next one is idea for you. Would it be easier for you if you had a copy to look at? Uh, there you go. Uh, yeah, <laughs> jump in, jump, you can jump in with questions. Yeah, feel free. Um, Next one is idea for you, and that was the test in which you had to write for 11 minutes on the open-ended question, mm -hmm. and that we're not evaluating how well-written it was or how creative your ideas were. We literally count the number of words you write to see how many ideas came to you in that span of time. People who score high the way you do have ideas just flowing out of your mind like popcorn out of a popcorn popper, mm -hmm. and it could be ideas for anything. It could be stories you want to write, it could be podcasts you want to do, it could be places you want to travel. But likely for you, when you're faced with a problem, first thing you do is brainstorm all the different options. It is not always useful for concentration. It's possible if you read something boring, you can read a couple of pages and have no idea what you read because your mind went off over here. Um, therefore, you should not be an accountant, even though you've got <laughs> really strong numerical aptitudes because you would be a very bored accountant. Mm -hmm. You'd be really good at it, but you'd hate it after a certain point in time. Other thing with this is you need variety and change in your work. Doing the same thing all day, every day, is likely to bore you silly. Um, you need to have your hands in a lot of different pies. This is often useful for fields like counseling, journalism, um, teaching, PR, marketing, those kinds of things. I suspect you've never had trouble coming up with a topic for a paper, or if you had trouble, it was because you had so many ideas and you just couldn't narrow it down. You might occasionally write 20 pages when you're only supposed to write 10, um, because yeah. all of those <laughs> ideas are just there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you ever keep track of your ideas? Yeah, I've gotten to the point now where, like you're saying, I have an idea for um, like, a, like a screenplay or something mm -hmm. else to write, and I just have to write it down in my notes app mm -hmm. just so I can come to it later. Usually I forget about it, but... <laughs> well, that happens a lot because you've got so many ideas that mm -hmm. you don't need to go back to ones you've had, but it is helpful to, you know, the notes app something so that you can go back to it if you want to. Um, and so that occasionally you might like, oh, yeah, that was a really good idea. I should do that. Mm -hmm. um, you may want a business partner, if you're ever in business, who would score low in this so that they can balance you out, so that they can be the person who says, mm, let's pick that one um, and do that. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes you've got this many ideas, you just have a bunch of ideas and they never get done. Um, 
is you might jump from one half-finished screenplay to another or one half-finished novel to another. The podcast is probably a really good medium for you Mm -hmm. because they're fairly short and bite-sized. So you can do a bunch of them. You might do short stories or, you know, television episodes rather than, you know, a miniseries. Um, Any questions about that? Not so much a question. I just, that just makes sense. Like, Mm -hmm. like I've always, I've felt those things, obviously, Mm because they are innate, but it's really cool to have this backing that up for some kind of science and data backing it up. That's one of the benefits, I think, of our testing. It's very rarely, like, hugely surprising to people, Mm -hmm. but it should be confidence building because, A, it's scientific proof. You really are good at this. And B, it gives you a name for something you've known about yourself. And when you can name it, you can own it. Um, And that can be helpful going forward. Definitely. It's hard not to think that other people might have it too. Right. And and you just don't know about it. Right, exactly. I mean, very often when you've got a strong aptitude for something, you think everybody else can do it. They're just choosing not to. Um, Or if you don't have an aptitude for something, you think everybody else can do this. What's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas sort of seeing it quantified is like, all right, yeah. For some people, this is easier. For some people, it's harder. And sometimes when one of your skills is idea generation, people call you ADD and you don't realize what the benefits are. Like my best friend works for Procter & Gamble in their sports marketing department. And so she uses this all the time because she's coming up with those, you know, thank your mom Olympics ads and, um, (laughs) you know, and all right, we're going to do an event around this and we're going to do, you know, Mm. we've got to have a press conference. And so... You know, those ideas need to be generated and need to be done. Questions or comments? You got anything? No. All right, yeah. Foresight was the test with the line drawings. You had to write down everything that was made you think of. One of them sort of looks like a bowling ball. And it's how you see possibilities and how you prefer to set goals. Mm-hmm. People who score high the way you do see a ton of possibilities in these very vague little drawings. Because of that, tend to be a lot more motivated having long-term goals feeling like the work you're doing is leading up to something, either growth and development for yourself or toward a larger goal that's important to you. Doctor who scores high might want to cure cancer. I never do it, but would see every patient is leading up to it. Mm-hmm. Doctor who scores low is more focused on the here and now, or anybody who scores low is more focused on the here and now. Want to see results, cross things off a list. The doctor who scores low is more focused on did this individual patient get better? They might eventually cure cancer, but that's not the motivating force. For you... <laughs> As high as you score, you've got to have a goal. Mm-hmm. And that's probably, I mean, often people who score high in this, the period right after college graduation is very challenging because there's always been a goal up until now. And then it's, I have no idea what right. the goal is. And so then it tends to make you feel a little bit restless. Unfortunately, scoring high in this does not help you pick <laughs> what the goal is. Sorry. Yeah. You are more likely to achieve it. You're more likely to see around the obstacles and figure out how to get there. Um, you know, you want to win an Oscar, you're more likely to be the person who figures out how to do it. A um, couple of things to watch out for with this. One is what we call mistaken persistence. It's not wanting to change your mind, even if circumstances change and the goal stops being what you want. I had this client who scored exactly like you, wanted to build a boat and sail around the world. That's a great goal. But as I'm talking to him about it, he tells me how much he hates working on the boat and how working on the boat all day is just making him miserable. And I said, do you maybe want to rent a boat or pay somebody to build a boat? <laughs> and that was up to him. You know, maybe it was worth it to him to be miserable for that period of time because the end goal was so important. Right. But that's something to think about because 
do you want to check and see, somebody describes to me as you're banging your head against a brick wall, how badly do you want to be on the other side of the wall, and could you maybe jump over it, go around it? Be aware of that. The other thing is the letdown when the goal is achieved. You hear about this with marathon runners, they train and train and train and then run the marathon and then think, now what? Uh, yeah. We encourage you to stagger your goals. Think about the next one's going to be before you hit one. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to run a marathon, think next, triathlon. You don't have to do that, by the way. Um, but, you know, you. you're welcome. Um, but, you know, always having a goal on the horizon, even if it's a short-term one, will be helpful for you. Um, when I was in graduate school, we called this post-dissertation stress disorder because it was like my whole life has been this, and then it's I, I don't know what to do next. Right. Um, so having at least one little piece to think about next will be helpful for you. Now, sometimes people who score high in both of these, you can see so many possibilities, there are so many ideas, it's paralyzing. Because you don't want to eliminate the 99,999 other things you thought of by picking one. And then it's helpful to sort of break it down and research each idea to determine, yeah, you're right, no, I don't want to do that, or I do want to do that. Um, and sort of very systematically have steps to eliminate or develop some of those ideas. Any questions about that? I was going to ask, what's the best way to go about forming goals for that mindset? But you kind of covered that with mm -hmm. kind of short goals that can be tracked systematically, or yeah. building some kind of system to yeah, exactly something you're working something on. you're working to it. Yeah, and you know, it might also be thinking about something huge that you could never achieve. You know, world peace or you know, ending yeah. world hunger or whatever that you could always feel like you're making a little bit of progress toward, so that then you never feel that letdown and it's. And it's also not something you're going to give up on because we're always trying to, you know. Uh, or you might shift it a little bit because you don't have to decide at the age of 23 what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Because mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you don't want to do that no. because you need to have this variety of change. But something big that you can contribute to in a lot of different ways can be really helpful. It's a hard tension to balance between um, wanting to have something to work for but mm -hmm. knowing that it it's never just that one thing you're always updating organically right. what the next yeah you know it's always is. but like you said i think college for me was kind of the goal throughout mm -hmm. high school and right. then when doing and then being in there I was, I was enjoying it and yeah. after it was like all right now <laughs> how do i build my life now? yeah and you know and I remember this from my senior years, like I, <laughs> I had a goal up until now and it's like the first time in my life I don't know what's next. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and sometimes people go get a bunch of graduate degrees because it's like, oh, school's great. There are goals associated with school. I'm going to go back to school. Right. And you don't want to do that mm -hmm. because then you end up with a bunch of graduate degrees that are useless. And, um, and probably a lot of debt. And probably a lot of debt. <laughs> Particularly if Betsy DeVos screws you over. Anyway, yeah, never mind. True. Not yeah. the point. Um, so that's a tangent. Um, but anyway, but yeah, you, I mean, you want to make sure that, you know, if you go to graduate school, it's because, all right, at the end of this, it's going to make, it's going to open up possibilities for me, not just because I can't think of what else to do or because it's just the easy thing to do because you know school and you know you can excel at it. So um, other questions or comments? How would you advise um, someone who like might not be aware of what possibilities are out there? 
Like, how do you like, consider possibilities that you're just not aware of, which is kind what? of an impossible feat, but how do you, I guess, cross that bridge? To uh, we will get to that, actually, oh, okay, at the cool. end of this. Um, the short version is that basically with the interest survey that you did, you had a three-letter code that reflected your interests, and there's a book associated with that. that are, these are jobs that people with similar interests do that can help you think about that. And then use the Davidson Alumni Network. Because uh, I know for an absolute fact that there are a bunch of people who've signed up on that who are willing to talk to students about what they do. And, you know, I used it. People use it and call me. Helps generate ideas of possibilities of things. You know, right? Oh, I'm going to call somebody because they work in psychology. This is a weird psychology job. You know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it's not, you know, and so talking to somebody, right, this is what psychometrics is. This is the kind of work that we do. Helps sort of branch it out. Awesome. So that's, you know, that's the short answer, but we'll be more in depth on that, I promise. Oh, okay. Any other questions? Do you have anyone who scores high in one and low in the other? Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. What does that mean? What that means is that they tend to be people that are much more motivated by having, like, these short-term goals, like, just do, you know, I don't want to say just, but, like, I'm going to finish this one project and that's enough. Um, they don't need to feel that building towards something that's important. It can be a little bit easier, honestly, to be low in foresight and high in ID for you. Um, or low in idea for you and high in foresight because it's all right, I've got this one idea. I'm going to spend a bunch of time developing it and leaning toward it. When you've got them both, it can be, like I said, it's paralyzing. There's just so many options. And so then it's more of an effort to pare those down. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it also, it's kind of a, it's a visionary com combination of aptitudes because it's like you've big pictures, big ideas leading toward things that matter to you. Um, I had somebody in here yesterday with the high idea for you, high foresight. He owned his own small business and he just retired. And so he's, he's high foresight. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I want to do something because I've sold my business and I'm 55 years old. And, but he talked about when he was in his business, what he loved was the starting the projects and being there. All right, this is what we need to do. He did not want to be the nitty gritty I'm actually going to draw out how we're going to, you know, simplify our warehouse procedures. I don't care about that. Uh, but this is what we need to do. This is the end goal. Somebody else is going to do that. Well, I'm off having another idea about a new store we need to start. So it's making sure you put yourself in the position of the big picture, big planner, not the I'm here filling out these spreadsheets and making sure this contract is done correctly which you certainly could do because you've got the aptitudes to do that, but again, you'd get bored. Right. Awesome. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. Right. Any other questions? No. Okay. Inductive reasoning was the test with the rows of six pictures you had to go through and mark the three that had something in common. Uh, and that's how you like to make decisions. Mm -hmm. People who score high are comfortable with guesswork, putting information together quickly and coming to a conclusion. People who score low tend to want to make sure they've done all the research, have all the facts, make sure their answers are right. For you, scoring in the middle, it just depends on the situation. If you know a lot about something, you'll be comfortable making that quick decision. If you don't, you probably want to take a step back and do some research. You're the ideal person to have on a team because there will always be people who are like, oh, let's do this without thinking it through. Right. And there will also be the people who want to form a task force and study it for the next three years and they're not actually getting anything done. Whereas you can be the person who can bring those people together. Hey, y'all slow down. No, y'all speed up. Uh, we've done enough research. This is the next best step. Let's go.
Any questions about that? No, this is all kind of really interesting because I, I did a lot of theater in mm -hmm. Davidson and like started acting, which fed into the idea of mm -hmm. Corey and mm -hmm. Foresight. Um, mm -hmm. But then I got really into directing my senior year. Okay. So that this inductive reasoning piece really fits into that. And I don't know if I'm just now reading more into that now right. that, like I'm, that you said that, but it, it feels like it fits. Yeah, I think it well. particularly it helps to have that middle range inductive reasoning and analytical reasoning it helps give a little breaks to the idea for you. Because um, like my friend who works for Procter & Gamble, she's like, I work with people who will just sit here and generate ideas up until the day before the Olympics if I let them. <laughs> Warren's like, no, okay, we actually need to right. slow down. We actually need to get this stuff done, so we need to stop generating the ideas at this point and just implement what we've got. Mm -hmm. um, so that you've got that ability to gather all the ideas together and then say, all right, we need to put this production on. Let's yeah. go with Let's where we are. Yeah. Um, any other comments or questions about that? No, good right. analytical reasoning. Analytical reasoning was the uh, chips in the board, animal, cat, dog. Uh, yeah. I had to put those in a logical order. It's how fast you organize things in your head. You can certainly organize things in your head. You're not driven to do it just for fun. If you have a system that works, you're going to keep using that system. If it stops working, you'll come up with something else. You probably don't like to have too many rigid outlines and plans, like to have a little bit of flexibility. Mm -hmm. So like to create your own outlines and plans so that you're not having to follow too rigidly what somebody else wants you to do. Any questions about that? How does that pair with the inductive reasoning? Well, it's, the inductive reasoning is more about intuitive leaps. It's making connections um, from A to D. The analytical reasoning is more about setting it up in a logical order. It goes from A to B to C to D. Okay. So like when you're directing a play, you're doing that. But like once you've got it set up and working, unless it stops working, you're just going to go with the system you've come up with. Right. Whereas the person who scores high is going to be, oh, no, wait, this could be a little bit better if we tried this over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. My dad scores high in this, and like he won't take the same route from Charlotte to Atlanta ever. Because he's <laughs> like, I'm going to find a better one. I'm like, Dad. They're all, it's 85. I know it sucks, but, uh, but it's 85. There's nothing uh, Yeah, you know, I'm like, I know it's terrible, but there's really no other way to go. Uh, but he likes to try to find some other, that's just his thing. Right. Um, any other questions about that? No, that makes sense. All right. Numerical aptitudes. Number series was the booklet with the patterns of numbers. You had to predict the next one in the series. Right. It's understanding and working with complex mathematical information. Economists, actuaries often score high in this. Um, because of your high idea for you, I don't think you want to be an economist or an actuary. Uh, but if you need to understand numbers for budget reasons or statistics, it's going to come pretty easily to you. But the idea for you kind of trumps it as far as what you really need to use. Um, so it, more for you, it's numbers in service of something else. If you were going to do something numerical, I would say more economics than anything else because you've got more big picture You've got to think about a lot of other factors, not just sitting there crunching numbers. That makes sense? Yeah, makes right. sense. Number facility was the one with the chips in the board um, where you had to do the multiplication and addition. And that's just how fast you do computation in your head. Everybody knows somebody who would score high in that. It's the person you go out to dinner with and you're splitting up the check and they're like, oh, you owe this. Everybody else in the world uses a calculator or the app on their phone or they take a couple extra seconds. The number series is more important for understanding what the numbers mean. Number facility, seriously, just use a calculator. Uh, mm -hmm. 
or the Avenger fight. Um, any questions about that? I feel like, again, it fits into my background, but I'm curious to hear more about how the tests are set up to get to those conclusions. Mm. Well, number facility literally was just set up to see how fast you could do the calculations. And it's the reason it's chips instead of pen and paper mm -hmm. is so that the, the graphoria and how fast you process it that way doesn't influence it. Okay. And we were originally looking when the test was set up, it's for people for accounting and banking and that kind of thing and just run the numbers in their head. Mm -hmm. Number series is more about problem solving and more about being able to look at statistics or finance and draw conclusions from it. Because, you know, again, use a calculator or formulas in Excel to do the calculations for you. So number series is much more financial analysis, whereas number facility is much more just pure calculation. Gotcha. The rate of speed of The rate of speed, yeah. What you're doing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things that, like, it was really useful when we first developed it. Hardly anybody does math in their head anymore. Right. Um, or, you know, if they do, it's just because they have that aptitude and they can't help it. Because mm -hmm. I've worked with people who are like, oh, my boss in insurance, he can sit there and figure out, oh, yeah, this is the percentage off and da da da, da. Everybody else goes and plugs it into the computer. So it's, it's nice to have, but it yeah. doesn't keep you from doing your job. I guess I, I'm curious. I was going to maybe save this for later, but I'll ask it now since sure. you brought it up. Um, have you all let the Johnson & Connor research foundation th like thought of either new tests or like either maybe put tests on the cutting block because i know yeah i saw a lot on the tests that they were from like on the copyright like 1985 right yeah so i was wondering yeah there have been new ideas people have proposed or something yeah like there we're we have a research department based out of chicago and they are sort of constantly evaluating the tests to to see if there's a way to improve them or a different way to give them and then also it, you know, people propose new tests and we test them out and see if they work. Okay. And so like numbers, like I'm, I'm doing this research project, we test everybody at this boy's home in Vidalia, Georgia. We've done it since 1984. As I've done the research project, it's like, all right, well, we weren't given this then. And then this came into the battery and then we took this out and then we improved the test and then brought it back in. Um, mm -hmm. So it's sort of a, it's an evolving process. It's been a, I'm trying to think when the last new test we added it's been a it's been a little while, but there've been a couple we've tested and could it wasn't valid enough um, or reliable enough for us to keep giving it. So it's it's an ongoing process. Awesome. And have, are there were there any old tests that got yeah away? yeah we used to give an oral idea for you where people would talk and we would count the words, oh, interesting. which was. We didn't find a lot of difference between the written and the talking, and the talking was so much harder to score because you had to sit there. Um, so that's why we eliminated that one. But we used to have a reading efficiency test. We used to have different ways of measuring what the wiggly block measures. There was a test called Black Cube and some other funky things. We've updated the way observations been given. It used to be like a literal tray of objects, and we would move stuff around on it in between things. And then, so, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Awesome. Gotcha. <laughs> Any other questions before we move on? Mm. All right. Structural visualization is not a test in and of itself. It's a combination of the scores on the two tests, paper folding and wiggly block. Paper folding is diagrams that show how a square piece of paper has been folded. First fold, second fold, and then we punch a hole. 
Test is figuring out where the holes are going to be after it's been unfolded. This is the second practice item. They start to look like that. Then if I if I messed up, they would um, the the proctor would like actually do it. Yeah, the show hole you and then yeah. show me the holes. Yeah. It's trippy. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's so much easier with the piece of paper. <laughs> um, but that's taking something two dimensional: design, blueprint, X-ray, determining what it looks like in three dimension. You scored the middle range on that. Wiggly block is actually manipulating it in three dimensional space. The wiggly block. <laughs> as long as you didn't throw a block out the window, you had a successful wiggly block session. Yeah. Okay. Someone did that in our New York office, <laughs> and I live in a fairly constant fear. We're on the 10th floor. You could literally kill somebody. Oh, my God. Uh, so you know, as long as you didn't do that, you had a good wiggly block. All right. Can't say uh, I didn't think about that. I understand. I've had people threaten to throw them at me, and I'm like, okay, if it's gotten to that point, just stop. Um, it's not worth it. Um, this is the small one. It's cut into four pieces. We take them apart and mix them up. Test is putting them back together as quickly as you can. You want to try it? I would love to try it. All right, close your eyes. Close my eyes? Yep. Yeah. All right, open your eyes. Go. <laughs> so people who score high in this tend to like to design and build and fix things. Architects, mechanics, engineers. People who score low the way you do tend to excel at the more abstract fields. Law, politics, business, education. And I know you built sets. And you might enjoy doing that for a production you care about. You probably don't want to fix other people's cars all day. Right. The reason you didn't choose to major in biology, chemistry, or physics. Uh, well, it would be nice to tell my mom that. There you go. <laughs> um, and I guess whenever I build sets, too, is under someone else's right yeah yeah someone else planned it and told you what to do yeah um yeah like 31 32 seconds oh that's pretty good uh, <laughs> how long does like what, what would you say the range is like times the range of time yeah the time limit on this one is 18 minutes that was, oh my that God. was tricky yeah that the uh, there's one that was three by three yeah I, I was very weak on that one i don't want to use bad uh, yeah, then you were bad. I must say, it did take you a little while. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, you did the four piece pretty fast, though. Okay. Just 22 seconds. So, you know. Um, but, you know, should you want to take the test, you get to take, you, you can do the nine piece and the 12 piece. Um, all right, any questions about that? Mm-mm. Okay. Auditory aptitudes are the beeps tests. It is extremely rare for someone to score high on all three of those. It's approximately 10% of our clients. This office alone tested 700 people last year. We've got 10 other offices, so you, know, you can multiply that out. Um, often people who score high on all three of these work in some kind of musical or sound-based type of career. You play an instrument? I sang a lot. Okay. I played trombone in middle okay. school, but yeah, I sang a lot. It's probably easy for you to learn music by ear. It's also easy for you to sight read because before you're so high. Hey everybody, quick editor's note here. I was not good at sight reading in AP Music Theory. Just wanted to include that. But both of those things. Tonal memory is obviously memory for the tune. Rhythm memory is memory for the rhythm. That is useful in things like writing and public speaking, hearing how words sound good together. It's useful to you acting. It's useful to you learning lines. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, also useful in things like running and cycling, getting into a rhythm. And learning other languages. Did you take another language? Took some Spanish in okay. college. Okay. Um, should you want to, that would be 
something that would come pretty easily to you. You know, go learn Italian and whatever. Uh, <laughs> pitch discrimination is hearing the very fine distinctions between tones. Does it bug you when people chomp on apples or smack their gum or? Uh, there are certain sounds that set me off. Yeah. Like a um, metallic sound, like um, two um, metals on top of scraping. Oh yeah. Yeah, there are a few though. Yeah. Um, you can probably tell if something's wrong with your car because it sounds funny, or mm -hmm. if somebody's having a bad day because their voice is, even they're trying to sound good, it sounds a little off. Mm -hmm. um, probably sensitive with your other senses as well. You might be sensitive to smells and tastes and the feel of fabric and that kind of thing. Often people with high pitch discrimination have very high standards, both for themselves and for other people. Uh, Interesting. Might be a little bit of a perfectionist. Uh, and it might frustrate you to work with people who are just giving the minimum they can give. Um, you know, when you're directing the play, you want people who really care about doing a good job doing yes. it, not people who are like, oh, I need to get my theater one on one credit. Um, you need that in, I mean, you had it in college because you were dancing. Um, right. You need it in a work environment as well. Mm -hmm. Need to be around people who also care about doing a, putting together a quality product. Otherwise, it's gonna be frustrating for you. Um, this is useful, obviously, for music. It's also useful for learning other languages, like I said. It's useful for speech pathology and audiology, voice recognition software, um, what am I forgetting? Radio and television broadcasting, yeah, those kinds of things. But with all three of these high, if you don't use sound in your work in some way, you need to have an active musical hobby. Okay. Keep singing, you know, create mashups on your computer app podcasts, uh, yeah. you know, something, because otherwise it's going to be frustrating for you. Interesting. Any questions about that? Um, was it, I think it might have been the pitch discrimination one where, I mean, you were dead on, like, I am pretty perfectionist. I like working on something meaningful, and then when other people don't find it as meaningful, it really just chafes at me a good mm -hmm. bit. Um, so could you explain more of just the process of how you extrapolate the results from that test into well that, that is or is it, that with other aptitudes i have it's with other aptitudes you have and okay. it's also sort of anecdotal evidence over the years mm -hmm. of the people who score high in this report that they tend to be and it we've done a little bit of research it's sort of this fineness of perception so that you know, like I have, my pitch discrimination is literally fifth. Uh, it, it's just non-existent. Um, so that, like my husband who is high, he notices things that I don't notice. You know, he's constantly bothered by, you know, their leftover smells in the kitchen and there's, and so because of that, like he needs for it to be more perfect, otherwise he's noticing these mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I'm just kind of like, eh. uh, <laughs> smells fine to me, I don't care. Um, and, you know, I don't bring that to my job, obviously. And obviously, I went to Davidson. But, but, you know, it's something that we've observed, that the people who score high in pitch, it's not just sound. It's also that they tend to be people who are very discerning about what kind of coffee and what kind of wine they drink. And, you know, need, need to buy expensive headphones, because otherwise the pops and crackles and the cheap ones are going to bug you. Yes. Uh, and then that applies to other things as well. You'd rather have the higher quality product than buy the cheaper thing that's going to break. You know, most people record these sessions on their phone. 
Uh, <laughs> whereas, whereas you have this, you know, elaborate microphone, elaborate with an, microphone with an system. Exactly. I'm going to sound so much better on your recording oh, yeah. than I do on everybody else's. It's so crisp. Exactly. So it's sort of looking at, because we do these validation studies where we test people in different careers and go back and look at what aptitudes do they have and what do they say they're using in their work. And we have the people who report, all right, this pitch discrimination means that I'm always the last line of proofreading anything. Um, because everybody knows I'm not going to let it go out unless it's done right. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. How then do you either maximize that skill or maybe learn how to, I don't want to say tamper it down, but maybe right. cope with situations that, you know, obviously it requires you to kind of not be so particular. I think that's sort of experience right. of getting practice of letting things go okay because you know i mean and again you did this in school because if mm -hmm. you did it to too much of an extent you you would have eight zillion incompletes and you would not have you know you reach a point where it's like well this is due i gotta go right i'm gonna turn it in it's as good as it's gonna get um and so it's sort of practicing being okay with this could be more perfect but it's better to have it done mm -hmm. so you know it's not a great answer but it's no, but that makes sense, and I've often done that. And yeah. I mean, it's, I guess it's hard to fall in the trap that these are really determinative um, mm -hmm. because they are an eight, but there's still a lot of um, experience and socialization that's still... Exactly. In all of this. Well, exactly, you know, because I was talking to somebody yesterday who was fifth inductive reasoning, which is a tendency to just not let anything go. It's me. He's like, you know, but I've got to be very decisive. And I'm like, again, that's just experience of knowing, all right, I have enough information to feel good about this decision. Sure, I could get more, but what I'm going to find out is probably not going to change. Mm -hmm. And it's just balance, learning to balance that. But it's like other innate things, you know. I mean, you, I mean, sure, we all innately would rather sit on the couch and watch Stranger Things than go work out. But at a certain point, it's like, all right, I, I do actually have to get up and go do something. Right. Uh, you got to train yourself. I mean, maybe we don't all innately want to do that. I innately want to do. Um, but I have a six-year-old, and so I got to yeah. get up and go do stuff rather right. than, you know. Um, so you just sort of learn to balance it. But it's also knowing that in your career or other things you do, that's an asset you're going to bring to the table as long as you don't take it to an extreme, uh -huh. you know. Because it's the same thing with the ideas. It's an asset you're bringing to the table unless you do nothing but generate ideas and are never able to actually... Right. Um do any of them and it's still on you to figure out how to use that right exactly okay and this is another bigger big picture question mm -hmm. but do you i mean obviously these tests would cut against the idea that you get better or worse at these kind of things um but i remember taking music theory and i've, I've kind of been trained in this stuff a little bit so do you think that factors into me scoring on? No, because okay. it's deliberately not musical notes right. so that people with a musical background don't have an advantage. The way I always describe it to people, it's, it's not that you scored high because you've studied music theory. It was you were drawn to study music theory because you were somebody who scored high. Okay. Um, again, with my daughter, I took her to music classes, even though I have no skills in this whatsoever, and like in the music, you know, in the free play, when everybody else is like banging on drums, she's trying to build stuff out of the drum and the thing. And I'm like, okay, 
I'm still making her go to piano lessons, but it's probably not that she's like, oh, I must do something musical. Whereas you with those aptitudes, always, it was, I've got to sing. I've got to. Hmm. Because otherwise, I'm going to be unhappy. Yeah, maybe that's why I was a little just like like um, stagnant growing up because I didn't really join a choir until like junior year in high school. Mm-hmm. Like it was late. I mean, I did stuff in middle school, like trombone. I like band, yeah. fair amount, but yeah, I guess. You were probably singing in the shower like the whole time though. Oh yeah, and I would sing like around the house and I was just Yeah, and like, listening to music up. and a yeah. choir hall. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know. Um, and thinking Never about, you know, this is why this music is better than that. Cuz again, it's a thing, you know, like I appreciate and enjoy music, but my husband like we're driving along, he's like, uh, "Don't you hear the bass line in this?" And I'm like, "What?" Um, <laughs> I can't hear it. It's not it's not my strength. Um but you know, I, but for you, because it is your strength, you, that's a thing you've probably already always noticed, even if you didn't consciously articulate it. Right. So. No, I definitely got into it. One of my hobbies now is just listening and finding a bunch of yeah. music. Um, and on my like nice headphones, just really <laughs> hearing some weird, weirder stuff that is just different sounds and textures. That right. Really just yeah, it's, it's satisfying. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Hearing fresh um, yeah, so is fine attention to sensory detail directly correlated with basically needing things to be perfect, or is it is it often the case that, you know, someone can you know, be super attentive to fine details and mm-hmm. things that they're sensing and not really need things to be exactly how they know are, like, correct? Yes, yeah, you can be super attentive and it doesn't have to yeah. be perfect, but it's just that you're going to be, yeah, far more bothered by things that aren't right, yeah. you know, than somebody who doesn't have that same, you know. It, it's sort of the difference between somebody who, like, really needs to drink high-quality coffee versus the people who are like, eh, whatever the gas station has. Uh, you know, it's not that it has to be perfect, but it's the, I mean, I'll drink what the gas station has, but, not me, but, you know, somebody will say that, but I'm going to complain about how terrible it tastes the whole time. Yeah. Whereas the person like me, I'm like, whatever. Um, but the high-scoring person, is, it's just going to be, they're going to pay attention to it, even if they don't always make sure it's always perfect. And so this is testing specifically auditory yeah. like sensory perception? Yeah. It seems like you're basically saying that it kind of is across the board with all it senses. It tends to be. It tends to it, be. If you have that, it tends to also permeate okay. smell and taste and touch. Is that based on, again, anecdotal evidence? Anecdotal evidence, yeah. Okay. Yeah, really, you guys have, I looked a good bit online last night. Um, kind of like a pretty good sample size because it's yeah, we've got, been going for a while. Yeah, it, I don't think we've quite reached a million, but mm-hmm. it's, I know it's over half a million. It's, last I heard, I want to say it's like 800,000 or it's, Closer to a million than it is to a half. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Over, what are we on now? 96 years. Uh, other questions? Mm, no. Okay. We test six different kinds of memory, two auditory memories, tonal and rhythm, two visual memories, observation and memory for design, memory for words, and memory for numbers. Strongest memories, memory for sound, and memory for words. Um, Therefore, things you're trying to learn, either read them or listen to them. Uh, 
you know, again, so helpful, lines for place. Um, I'm not actually allowed to say, but Allison Janney herself said she took our test, so I'm allowed to say that. I'm not allowed to say how she scored, but, uh. you know, um, obviously she's an actress, so she had some skills that were <laughs> related to that. Um, <laughs> So you're saying I'm going to be Alice and Janney. Yes, that's I'm what I'm saying. saying. All right, great. Um, wait for your West Wing break, and um, there you go. Uh, and then you'll win your Oscar, like, 20 years later. Uh, got to hear my witness on that. All right. I promised him an Oscar. Wait, no. Uh, wait, and that's, it's recorded. You're going to sue me. Darn it. No, but, I mean... <laughs> It makes a lot of sense that you've been drawn to communication types of roles, podcasting, acting, um, because you've got very strong communication-based aptitudes. Um, number memory, you'll remember number, that was the license plate test with the eight six-digit number, numbers. You'll remember numbers are important to you. They're not important. Program them into your phone or write them down so that you know you have them. Mm-hmm. You don't remember things you see. Um, observation was the binder we flipped through, small changes on oh, each yeah. page. And memory for design was connect the dots. Um, so it's the worst of them. Again, there's no worst. There's no, um, this is your excuse for not noticing when people get a haircut or a new car, or, you know. Um, and you probably didn't prefer. didn't notice this week that I got a new haircut. See, there you go. I'm just kidding. This is your excuse. Uh, um, no, but I mean, you know. I mean, it's a running joke with my boss. She said to me one day, she's like, you ever worn that necklace before? Everybody else in the office is like, oh my God, she's worn it every day for a year. Uh, <laughs> if it's not, she just it just slides right out of her head, and so you just learn not to be offended. Uh, you know. And again, these days, if you need to remember something that's visual, take a picture of it. Mm. You know, you've got your phone right there. Um, and like, if you're doing visual art, you're probably either creating it from your head or creating it from something in front of you you're not relying on your memory. Mm. Uh, you probably, well, I mean, you've got an app that t- gives you directions. But you, before that, you probably preferred written directions or spoken directions to a map. You know, because you're going to remember, again, if you've heard it or read it, you're not going to remember the map. Mm. Probably. Um, any questions about that? Um, yeah, I, and yeah, with map apps now and with pictures, it's, it's not as important. But yeah, I, I put the um, artistic aesthetic, you kind of, again, like kind of zeroed in on something. Because we, um, as my friend Scotty here, he's really big into visual art. And mm-hmm. like we just, you know, we're just hanging out painting last night. And mm-hmm. uh, mine are always really abstract. Yeah. Because, yeah, I've just like given up the hope of being like drawing anything realistic. So sure. I just kind of go off of whatever I'm feeling, whatever, yeah. whatever instinct. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. And like with the high pitch discrimination, you might enjoy photography as the visual art because the high pitch helps you make adjustments in light and focus and those kinds of things. Okay. So, um, you are not colorblind, so congratulations on that. And with the abstract art, you probably enjoy like mixes of colors and you know putting things together because that color discrimination you can see those fine distinctions between colors. Mm-hmm. Just to show Scott in here. The test it's four different boxes with oh, different yeah. cool. shades, and you've got to put them in order from one end to the other. Wow, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, the question I get daily is, are these really all different colors? That's uh, cool. <laughs> as I say, you know, you can see that. Um, Again, not as insistent for you as, say, Idea Foria, mm. but useful in graphic art, 
you know, set design, interior design, yeah. costume design, makeup, those kinds of things. Also useful for things like plastic surgery and restorative dentistry and those hmm. kinds of things. Um, any questions about that? No. Um, I don't have any. Okay. Scotty? Uh, so color discrimination, like that test right yeah. there. I mean, I, I'm guessing you're factoring those results in with, like... Yeah, with the pitch. Yeah. Yeah, because okay. it's both hearing and sound, or just hearing and cool. sight for you. Um, all right. Tweezer dexterity and finger dexterity. Don't go work in a factory assembly line. Okay. Um, you'll be bored, A. And B, don't want to do that fast. Uh, <laughs> you know. Um, obviously, you use your hands every day. You type and you text and you swipe and you, you know. Um, but you just don't want to do it in a high-speed environment. Mm. Yeah. This might have been how the guy who wanted to be a surgeon scored. I have no idea. Uh, And again, you can learn to be a surgeon. You probably don't want to be a microsurgeon, though, Um, where it's, you know, eyeballs and that kind of thing. You'd Uh be more like orthopedics, where it's like, right, Uh, big things. Um, Any questions about that? Targets. Yeah. So I'm assuming this tests primarily people, yeah, working with their hands Mm -hmm. or wanting or interested in. Uh, being a mechanic or really like building stuff, yeah. assembling yeah. stuff. Yeah, the tests were literally developed looking for people to work on factory assembly lines. Yeah. Very few people work on factory assembly lines anymore. It's all machines. But they can be used, you know, again, in things like surgery or dentistry um, or, you know, finger dexterity is useful in things like massage. But it's the, you certainly can use your hands. You're not driven to do it all the time. You're not like, oh, I've got to go take up knitting because i got to have something to do with my hands. Mm-hmm. You might want to take up knitting just for fun, but not because of that. Yeah, not because of like a, like a tick yeah. on your yeah. head or anything. Yeah, because like my colleague Helen, she has this, and she's, she's cross-stitching. She's, she does Rubik's Cubes because she just needs her hands to be moving. The origin of fidget spinners, possibly. I don't know. Um, but, yeah. you know, something like that. Any other questions? Um, hmm. I do have a question or questions relating to the history of the Johnson O'Connor okay. Research Foundation, Johnson O'Connor, and right. like his work with GE to right. um, develop these human engineering tests to right. best fit people in a factory to their position so they can maximize their joy and also mm-hmm. for their employer to maximize like their workers' talents and right. make everything as efficient as possible and kind of when they had longer careers now mm-hmm. then than they do now, like to make sure they were the happiest there and then retain mm-hmm. talent. Right. Um, well, I think we can get into that okay. yeah. later. All right. It says personality on the bottom there. We did not, in fact, evaluate your personality. It's really more work approach. Okay. And we divide people into two categories, objective and subjective. People who score subjective the way you do tend to have very strong integrity about your work. If you've done something, tend to want to stand or fall based on your own accomplishments rather than having other people's hands messing in your stuff. It's not that you don't like people who don't want to work with people. I mean, obviously, you're directing plays, and you do, but you're probably happier if you can pick the people who are in your play, and you know you can trust them to do their jobs, yeah. rather than having to stand over people and make sure they're doing what you want them to do. Um, people who score subjective tend to prefer having their own unique contribution to make, so tend to prefer being experts or specialists. If you're going to be a veterinarian, you'd probably be happier being the cat cataract surgeon. Well, except for your dexterities. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, but rather than being a general vet. Or if you were going to teach, you'd probably hate teaching elementary school. You might like teaching advanced level drama. 
um, where people are motivated to be there and you're helping them learn, but you don't have to force them to do it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people who score subjective, they're really good at their jobs and they get promoted into management and they hate management because they don't get to do their job anymore. Because it's not that you're not a good leader, that's not why management's not a good fit, it's more that it's A, not wanting to hand, stand over people, make sure they're doing what they want to do, what you want them to do, and B, it's you want to still be able to do the thing that is your strength. So a role where you, you know, like if you were in HR and just had to constantly go counsel people about how to do a better job, you would probably hate that. Um, but like directing the play, you've picked your crew and your cast, you know a little bit about how to do, but your skill is doing the whole thing. Right. Whereas there's somebody else who's, you know, doing lighting and somebody else who's doing, but your skill is the leading the production. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Could you talk more about the objective? Sure. Mm -hmm. People who score objective tend to prefer working with and through other people, sharing thoughts and ideas, collaborating, coordinating. They tend to be people who they actually like taking the person who's not doing well and, and helping them get better. Um, so they like more of that management role because it's more about how everybody works together than having their own particular piece. The metaphor that I often use is the metaphor of the school. The principal is more likely to be objective, has to think about athletics and academics and the arts and how it all goes together. Individual teachers are more likely to be subjective. Mm -hmm. They're focused on teaching chemistry. Now they might, you know, because they care about their student, they might also care about what he or she's doing in athletics and arts, but it's more about their individual area of expertise. And that's their classroom. That's their classroom that they're in charge of. Mm -hmm. Yes, objective people cannot be micromanaged. Uh, mm -hmm. I hate it. Uh, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, <laughs> I can assess. Exactly. Um, and also, people who score subjective, like sometimes people who score objective can say, oh, I go to work and I get my paycheck, but my real life are my friends and my family and my hobbies. It's not that a subjective person doesn't have the friends or family or hobbies, but it's if the work is not satisfying, it drags everything else down. Mm -hmm. Because work feels like an extension of you as a person, and if you're not getting satisfaction out of it, it just makes you miserable. Um, so, I mean, I want everybody to follow their passion, but subjective people really need to. Interesting. Because um, if you're not doing what you love, it, and you've probably seen this with like classes and, you know, things you love, you're willing to spend a ton of extra time on and do, you know, whatever you have to when you were required to take. Uh, but, you know, the things you don't care about is like, eh, I'll get through this. And because you're, you know, you're a good student, and you, you, you'll do what you have to do. But it just feels like carrying something uphill. Whereas the things that you love, it's like, I mean, I could do this all day. And so you don't want your job to feel like a clash of hate. Okay. I... Scotty, I love having you here, but I wish my mom were here right now. <laughs> she would be like, yes, because if I don't want to do something, mm -hmm. I'm notorious. She'll tell, or she'll tell me, like, hey, can you go do this? Mm -hmm. Or, like, maybe you should think about doing this. And I'll say, oh, yeah, but then I just, like, won't do it. Mm -hmm. I'll just, like, put my feet. I'll pick weird points to put my feet in the ground and be like, I'm not doing this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Play this for your mom. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, there you go. Any other questions about subjective objective? Uh, oh, um, this might sh sh be a nice shift into like the other bigger mm -hmm. questions I have. Um, 
so with this knowledge of people kind of being delineated into two groups, mm-hmm. it, it, it strikes me that our education system, well, I guess it is a blend of it, but I guess my question would be, um, is there, how would you advise, like, a high, I know how a lot of high school students mm-hmm. think of this, how would you take them then having their subjective personalities but being thrown in a more, like, objective set environment? I think that's where they, I advise them to do as much as they can to kind of forge their own path, to okay. look for, I mean, you know, you don't get a lot of choice in electives in high school, but as much as you can, looking for the things you care about or starting clubs that you're passionate about or finding sort of the niche group of people who also hate this stuff um, Mm -hmm. and can maybe look at it from a different perspective. Um, Sometimes it's just, you gotta be patient, you're gonna get to to college and it's gonna be a lot better than this because it depends on where they are. Because people are at certain, certain types of public schools are gonna be a lot more open to innovation and you know some private schools are going to be more open but it's like where are you in school and i've advised some people to transfer schools depending on where they are and what their options are okay or you know homeschool um, or you know one of those hybrid online homeschool things gotcha. depending on what's going on with them interesting yeah um and yeah i guess even going bigger picture than that as your role as a, a psychometric um, and career counselor and I, and just like a counselor to high school college age mm-hmm. students what do you notice about education that maybe you kind of sitting on the side of it being like maybe we should try this out comprehensively the biggest thing is that the American educational system is set up to teach people who are high in graphoria because so much of it is, here's a lecture, here's, take some notes, take a test. And if you're high in Graphoria, that's easy for you. Yeah. You know, taking notes, I'm going to read them, uh, great. The vast, you know, 70% of the world is not high in Graphoria. And so there needs to be more of an acknowledgement of different modes of learning and mm-hmm. different options for people. Um, because I remember, you know, one of my graduate school classes, they were like, here, create a curated web portfolio, which is awesome. It's something I'd never done. But for some people in my class, they were like, this is so much better than writing a paper. I just wanted to write a paper because I knew how to do that. Yeah. But it was good for me to do a curated, you know, because then it was new. But I think it's more of a, it's more of the Montessori approach. It's more of the European approach okay. of offering different modes of learning. And the standardized tests, again, people who are high in graphoria tend to do better at standardized tests because of the way they're designed. Bubbling in circles, you're just faster. If you're mm-hmm. high in graphoria, you're going to read the questions faster and you're going to get through it faster. And so then, I mean, it, then it creates this sort of trickle down because then if you don't score high on the standardized test, then you're not getting into as good a school and, or you're in elementary school and they're benchmarking you right. based on the test. And... You have some people who would really excel and are very, like, mastered the material who score low on the tests and then get funneled into a, you know, remedial learning, then they're bored and then they don't care. So the biggest thing I see is being open to different types of learning. 
Because if I had a nickel for every time somebody came in here and said, oh, I'm not good at math, and they're high in number series, and I'm like, oh, you've just had a bad math teacher. Because obviously you could learn this material. It's, and some, somehow in you know, kindergarten or first grade or second grade, you got convinced you weren't good at math and then just never tried. You know, or you know, didn't want to do it as much. Got so discouraged then, along the way. Yeah, got discouraged along the way, and so then it just became it just became a self fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. Or if you're at, like you said, a certain school and you don't have the opportunity to have as good of teachers. Right. Exactly. Um, it can. It's a big hindrance. Um, that's. I'm. I'm fascinated by that because the system props up a sort of artificial rigor. Mm -hmm. I, being a college advisor last year mm -hmm. and going to conferences for educators about the SAT and ACT, mm -hmm. particularly the ACT, I have some gripes with them. Um, big time, I'm sure you do uh, I was about to say, I, I could rant for hours. <laughs> yeah. But they set up this artificial rigor with their tests because they have to test across you know, 50 right. states with all sure. these different curriculums in each state. Mm -hmm. So they make it very generalized, but so they can have rigor, they word the tests in a very specific way that mm -hmm. is confusing. So you have to know, you have to know, you do have to know the test to know the wording game. Right, basically. exactly, yeah. That Graphoria game they set up where it suits that personality. Right. And I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously there's some intention there of just being like, yeah, okay, this is like our way of marketing ourselves right, a certain, yeah. as a certain test. but. It's weird to how widespread just the idea that, you know, we're not, <laughs> it's an easy way to, like, make some work rigorous, whereas at Davidson, right. a lot of it's more now is project-based learning yeah, and higher exactly. level classes, and yeah. it's like, all right, you have to do this, and it has to be good or not. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, I advise people a lot to look for programs that are much more project-based and problem-based. And when I was a librarian, I went to a lot of educational conferences about how to do that. Um, but it has, it has not spread to the degree that it should. And I mean, and like, as somebody who is taught, I get it, standardized, they're so easy to grade and there's no, mm -hmm. but you're not actually measuring what you think you're measuring. Right. You know, cause I mean, our tests are standardized, but they're not, you're not bubbling in circles because like, like I said, I mean, that's, we have so much research and like I've written things for people for like high school students applying to private schools, explaining, all right, this person scored low in Graphoria, therefore I would not consider whatever standardized test you have for admission to be an accurate um, measure of this person's skill and ability, mm -hmm. therefore. And you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but depending on the school. But I've, I've seen it work of somebody, you know, understanding, okay, we need to look more at teacher recommendations and portfolios mm -hmm. and those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, no, I could, I could sit here all because yeah. so much, I mean, because really the SAT measures whether or not, I mean, to a certain extent, like if you're, I mean, if you're really smart, you're going to score high on it right. at a, or a, at a certain level on it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it measures whether or not you can afford to buy the books and hire a tutor and learn and learn how to game the system. You can access those resources and game it. And, yeah. And, and on top of just being able to process stuff quickly enough to take the test quickly. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. God, that might, well, and also, Greg, this is just a petty thing, kind of, but like, 
you put it on a Saturday. I have to be there at 7 in the morning. Right, yeah, like, you know. Why are you doing why this? Why are you doing this? Well, and I, I mean, I remember being on admissions committees in graduate school, and they're like, GRE scores, like, we have to require them. But there is no correlation between success in the graduate program and your GRE scores. I mean, there's, there's just not. Mm. Because, you know, when you're a sociologist, you're looking at the correlation, and it's like, there, there, there's nothing. Nothing. You know, the correlation is you know, preparation and like, where'd you go to undergrad? And, um, and then it's also how good is your advisor? Cause you can have people who had equally good preparation, but one advisor's terrible and one advisor's really good. And so the person with a great advisor is going to succeed. Right. You know, and getting, and getting good enough recommendations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting to hear the GRE is not backed up by data so much as it is just, uh, institutional inertia and, right. and money. Yeah, no. I mean, I mean, I mean I've mean, i literally heard professors be like, well, there's just no correlation. So, you know, it's nice. This person's got a bunch of uh, GRE scores. But, all right, there is a backside to this. Oh. Um, so you were to be congratulated on your awesome English vocabulary. Yeah, English major paid off. English major paid <laughs> off. There you go. We test vocabulary because we've actually done research on people successful in a wide range of fields looking for the common denominator. The common denominator is a broad and precise vocabulary choosing the right word for the person you're talking to and the situation you're in, which you already have. I'm assuming you're an English major, you like to read. Mm. What do you do when you come across words you don't know? Uh, look them up. There you go. Instantly. There you go, do that, keep doing that. We tested your writing speed. There's no percentile, because we're really just checking the idea for you test. We wanted to make sure you had enough time to write down everything you thought of. You scored high anyway, it wouldn't really matter, but you write faster than most people, because also you have higher for you, so. Plus, you've had to keep up with your own ideas your whole life, so you had to learn to write fast. Visual designs, it's extremely rare for someone to score high in both visual designs. That was this test. Oh. I always do it upside down. Um, there are two scores for it, even though there's only one test, because we had a number of fine artists and commercial artists come in. They preferred simpler designs, so did you. They preferred non-uniform designs, so did you. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it's extremely rare for someone to score high in both of those. Um, when what that means is you've got an aesthetic sense that other people also have. So that if you were looking for a visual-based career, whether that is like art design or um, museum exhibit building or you know something like that, you would have an aesthetic that works well for that. Um, you may want to take a photography class or keep doing art with Scotty or, you know, uh, using that in some way. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. We tested your grip strength. Some correlation with overall physical strength. So useful for police officers and firefighters and people who operate heavy machinery. Okay. If you were going to fight some fires, you'd want to go lift weights. Otherwise, <laughs> does not affect your life. Um, doesn't mean you're not active. Doesn't mean you're not strong. Mm -hmm. it means it'd be hard to be a firefighter. Uh, which it would for most people who have not been preparing for it their whole lives. We didn't give you any experimental tests because we're between experiments at the moment. And we stopped giving laterality. Now there's a test that was removed from the battery. It was eye dominance and hand preference. We studied it for a long time thinking we'd find out something about right brain and left brain and we never did. So we stopped giving it. The computer program's still being updated so that's why there's a space but there's not a score. Questions about any of that? Um. No, um, it was cool because I know the test was framed as just like, oh yeah, just, just pick what you like, fun right. times, like, not as like, um, go 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 as right, the other yeah. tests. And it's it's interesting to have like a high 
score on it. Yeah. 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 I wasn't sure what the. But I guess in this framework, it's not necessarily, like, low isn't bad, even though we've right, been yeah, trained to think. Yeah, you've been trained to think low is bad, and low, bad. low is never bad. And the example I always use is that, you know, if height were an aptitude, it's wonderful for Shaquille O'Neal that he wanted to play basketball. If he wanted to be a jockey or a gymnast, his life would have been very difficult, scoring high in height. Um, so, you know, it's really about finding the right fit. And then you also have, like, Muggsy Bogues, who was 5'4", played in the NBA, was the assist leader for 10 years. Um, no one would have looked at his aptitude and said, hey, go play basketball, and yet he was very good at it. So, you know, um, it's really just about maximizing your strengths. He is my favorite basketball player name of all time. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I was really fond of Bubakar Awe. That's just oh. a great name. Uh, <laughs> and I used to really like Tim Biakabatuka, but then he turned out to be crazy and killed his girlfriend. And, oh. He still has a cool name, though. Uh, <laughs> for what that's worth. You can't take that away from You can't take that away from him. <laughs> All right, so any questions about your aptitudes before we get to your interests? I think we have any questions on aptitudes. All right. We emphasize aptitudes over interests because... Can keep, can keep yeah, that's yours. Right. Um, you can keep that, too, if you want to. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a little reminder of you. A little reminder of <laughs> Ryan's skills. Make that a collage of something. There you right. go. You could. Um, all right. So we emphasize aptitudes over interests because your interests can change. You don't know what you might become interested in. Mm -hmm. Aptitudes are more likely to be stable over your life. If you came in here in 20 years, the exact percentile numbers might shift a little bit. The overall pattern is unlikely to change. Hey everybody, another quick editor's note. It wasn't mentioned here, but I had to fill out a workbook of career interests, and I had to write down uh, the top five occupations I wanted that were listed. Uh, the first one being entertainer, because I had no idea how else to put that, and it sounded vague enough, and I was tired, and the coffee was wearing off by then. But anyway, back to the interview. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, everything you have on here is a good fit for your aptitudes. Mm -hmm. The big question for you is how to narrow it down right. and find your area of specialty. Because, um, you know, a lot of different things you could do entertaining. You should also keep doing the podcast no matter what, because that's just a good fit all around. Yeah. Um, and then journalism, it's really about, like, it could be music journalism. And, like, people will tell you journalism is dead. Newspapers are dying. Journalism is not. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, witness the current political situation. Uh, right. And, like, the people I know who used to work for newspapers, most of them do things like work in college information offices or work for websites or, you know, CNN or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So again, you're gonna be able to generate ideas like crazy and be able to keep up with the pace. Um, theater director, again, you've got ideas, you've got sounds, you've got visual, pulling that all together. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I would do is A, talk to your Davidson professors, go in the Davidson alumni network. There are Davidson alumni who work in movies and television that will talk to you. Uh, find those people, talk to them, get their advice about where to start. Um, and you know, like I just Googled 
tons of community theater in Knoxville um, mm-hmm. that even if you don't have a paying job right away would be a good place to start volunteering. And then, you know, like teaching, that's a very good subjective idea for you, high foresight, because, you know, to be a professor, you got to go get the PhD, which is a painful and evil process that, yes. you know, do that only if you can't think of anything else to do. Uh, right. <laughs> my advice for today. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, music producer, again, you're using your auditory aptitudes. Um, I'm going to give you the list of, you know, 197 careers related to music. Uh, <laughs> or related to auditory aptitudes. Some Mm -hmm. of them aren't music oriented. Um, And a lot of it may be about like, how do you make a living while you're, you know, trying to become Alice and Janney? Because I'm trying to remember what she was doing when she came in to get tested. I think she was like, I'm not allowed to tell you her aptitudes anyway. Uh, Well, she's my next interview, I think. There you go. (laughs) And again, I couldn't tell you she tested except she announced it on like, Stephen Colbert or something. Uh, it was some late night television show. So then I was like, oh, we can tell people she said. Um, anyway, the other thing you did was go through and answer all these questions and come up with the three letter code that reflects your interests, not necessarily your aptitudes. And you had A, A is artistic, art, music, literature. S is social, it's helping people. And C is conventional, it's doing the support work for those things. And then of course the I was pretty close. Okay. Um, but this book gives you information on each of these interest areas, what people interested in these things tend to want to do, what they tend to want to avoid, and then some exercises for thinking through like parts of things you like, parts of things you hate, etc. And then this book gives career suggestions based on the three-letter code. ASC is there, and ASI is there. Faculty in English and language and literature. Um, reporter news correspondent um, you may or may not want to do any of these things but if mm-hmm. something's interesting to you if you put this code into this website it gives you information on that career what the starting salary is likely to be what the day-to-day work is like what kind of education is required that's the good baseline information and mix up the code look under you know SAI and SAC and those kinds of things um, the benefit of this is not so much that I think you want to be a laserist. I'm not even sure what that is. Um, but it might help you think about things you did not previously know existed. And then, of course, what you have to do is go use the Davidson Alumni Network. Um, right. And friends of your parents, parents of your friends, anybody you know, go do informational interviews. See if you can shadow them for a day. Look for paid and unpaid internships because the more experience you can get and the more information you can get, the more you can narrow down your 80 zillion ideas um, into something that you really want to do. So I also do have another interest in making enough money to live in the professions I like that are artistic. Right. Don't as much. And even a PhD now, the career prospects Uh, are terrible. Yeah. So how how would you advise me to factor that? I would then look at things like PR and marketing um, that would let you use your aptitudes. And, you know, like I said, my friend who works in PR, you know, she does commercials, she does special events, she does, she's been to all the Olympics and she gets to go to, um, so, so she's doing these creative things while writing her novel on the weekends. Um, You know, so she makes money and can live and you know has a pretty cool job, but also gets to sort of factor these creative 
aspects in because you may want and you know I'd be careful looking at marketing roles because some of them are literally going door to door and handing out flyers so you want to make sure it's more of a you know I get to generate some content I get to you know and you know and to be fair she started out at Procter and Gamble as a temporary secretary and then you've got high foresight so as long as you know it's a step in the door then that is likely to be more comfortable for you than because I mean you'd be miserable if you're like oh I'm gonna be a secretary for the rest of my life but if it's all right I've got to start out at this lower level and then move up yeah. you've just got to have that clear path ahead of you and that's where talking to a lot of these alumni about what they do can help you you know get an idea of all right this is what the path would be mm -hmm. um, the other thing I would look at are sort of the like entertainment adjacent, um, you know, CNN employs a ton of people. Right. Um, yeah, you know, Turner Broadcasting employs a ton of people doing different things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, somebody who used to work for us works now for CNN, and one of the things she does is like compile pieces of evidence to present to people that are going to, you know, be part of whatever special thing they're doing. Um, Again, about the political situation. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so that it's sort of in the door. You know, because, well, like, you know, like I tell you, like, you can do PR for anybody. You can do it for Ted Turner. Um, you can do it for a nonprofit. You could do it for the Puppet Theater of Atlanta. Uh, you're making a living while also being kind of close to these things that you really love. Just to shift away from maybe my situation sure. a bit, how would you advise someone who doesn't have access to a strong alumni network like Davidson's. That is where starting to look at friends and family um, and the town you're in, if you're part of a church, if you're part of a synagogue, you know, mm -hmm. religious organizations, meetup groups, because there are a lot of meetup groups for people interested in starting their own business and entrepreneurial work and sort of expanding your network. Um, you know, a lot of high schools have, you know, there's the Facebook page presence. And you can, of course, it, you're less likely to get a response of just, you know, if you just Google who are some speech pathologists in my area. Although, to be fair, when I was a librarian, I would get calls from people in library school who are like, I need to do an internship with a library and your library is in my town. Can I come do it? And I'd always say yes because, you know. It's free help. It's free help. Exactly. You know, yeah. most people... A, they love talking about themselves. So as long as you're not actually asking them to give you a job, no. most people are willing to talk to students, recent graduates, about what they do. Mm -hmm. um, it's really finding the time. To it's really yeah, yeah, fun. yeah, precisely. You know, and again, it's the connection of either you know I'm a friend of so and so, but I I don't know that I've ever done a results session where at some point I didn't you know if I said. You might think about speech pathology, then the mom will go, oh, your cousin Harry's great aunt's brother-in-law is a speech pathologist. You know, and there's always some, oh, you know, somebody in my bridge club does that. There's mm -hmm. somebody. And, like, once you talk to one person, always that, you know, do you know anybody else who works in your field? Because particularly, well, you know, like, people who score subjective, they might find a field they generally would like, but they're not quite sure of what their specialty within it ought to be. So then yeah. it's... You know, your job sounds great. What are things related to it that I might want to find out about? Who do you know that I can talk to? Because it becomes sort of, it's like starting the ball rolling. Once you, once it starts moving, then it's got 
again, if you're dedicated to it, then you then it just spreads. Gotcha. So. And I guess that's kind of where a lot of people hit against um, if they find they're gifted at a particular thing or an aptitude. But if they are coming from a background where they don't have as much opportunity mm -hmm. to those resources, or they just live in a town, like I um, worked at a rural low-income high school mm -hmm. in like North Carolina, 30 minutes east of Hickory. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of connections to be formed there. Mm -hmm. There's just not a lot there. So um, right, I guess. I mean, yeah, the systemic inequalities are right. Un yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it is much harder if you're in a rural town 30 minutes east of Hickory and the jobs that are in town. Because, like, we have this Greenwood, Mississippi, it's a population of 15,000. The youth pastor of the First Presbyterian Church sent his daughter here, and now, like, we've tested so many people from this town. And, mm. like, I've had people in here, like, all right, you know, seriously, the only company in Greenwood, I think it's air conditioning. Um, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> But there must be doctors in Greenwood. There must be, you know, yeah. there are people in your church who do something other than work in the air conditioning. So it's sort of, you're starting from a, it's more difficult. It can be done. Okay. You know. Um, but it is true that, I mean, there are certain, I mean, if you're at a certain socioeconomic level, you're pretty much just looking to make enough money and that, the sort of following your passion becomes less important than right. subsistence. So getting by, and yeah, you have a family providing for them, and right, yeah, no, it is um, definitely mobility is restricted. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, and a, you don't, a great amount. yeah, and you, you know, may or may not have internet access. You may or may not, you know, I mean, there's just, mm -hmm. although most people now have at least some limited smartphone internet access where they are, but. Yeah, no, I mean, it does, and it, it's a systemic problem. That, to be, you know, there are nonprofits that try to alleviate that. Mm -hmm. Like, I volunteer for one that it's helping kids whose parents either can't read or can't read English mm -hmm. to develop their reading skills with a mentoring group, and then we also have people of different careers come in and talk to them to get a to start that process. And then there are other nonprofits who do that more for middle school and high school. They're like, my husband's done it um, for some high school nonprofit that I can't mm -hmm. think of the name of off the top of my head. Um, so, I mean, that that's a small dip, right. obviously. It is a thing that mm -hmm. some people are aware of and try to alleviate. That's good. And, and like maybe treating symptoms while you know, <laughs> some right. hypothetical right. movement or collective action can right. better. Um, well, or, I mean, what were you going to say? I was, well, because you know, that's one of the things about, you know, we're a nonprofit. We also charge $720 for our tests because that's actually less than it costs us to give them. Right. And part of the, part of my frustration with working here is, all right, you know, we have, we have a self-limited population. Mm -hmm. Now we do do like, you know, we test all the boys at the boys home. I'm currently doing a grant writing project in order to get some grants to test people at lower socioeconomic levels, also to test disabled veterans and, you know, groups that would not necessarily be able to pay for our testing. But that's mm -hmm. a, that's a nascent project right. that is expanding. That's, that's awesome to hear. 
and let's see what time is. Oh, no, I won't ask you too many more no, you're, questions. You're I know I've been. No, you're fine. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Um, you went to Davidson. I'll answer anything you want. Uh, <laughs> that's oh, how we all thank feel. You. <laughs> thank you so much. You're going um, So, I want to. I do want to talk more about the conditions. That mm-hmm. fascinates me. The the how nascent it is. But right. Um, going back to Johnson O'Connor mm-hmm. and his philosophy mm-hmm. that and particularly with the vocabulary piece you mentioned right. he studied a lot about um how vocabulary is such a strong factor in determining not deter- not determining but it's a strong factor with people who succeed highly mm-hmm. in an occupation mm-hmm. um so he, i mean his influence obviously it's named after him and i saw um dr john l holland um on the the yeah, profile. Yeah. The career inventory there. He obviously, he devised mm-hmm. the the categories, mm-hmm. um, like a realistic to clerical to artistic, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Um, are there any other academic influences or philosophies feeding into the psychometric work, or are they kind of paramount? They're kind of paramount. There was um, Dean Tremblay, um, who was somebody else who did a lot of study of career satisfaction. I mean, a lot of the influence is it's positive psychology mm-hmm. um, because it's about sort of using your strengths and finding your gifts and that kind of thing. Um, we do, like I said, we do have an existing research department that, like we just hired somebody new for it whose focus is, was career testing in minority groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it evolves, I guess, is really the short answer. Okay. I'm kind of leapfrogging off of that, mm-hmm. or piggybacking yeah. off of that, wrong animal. Um, but what are the new or innovative influences guiding the work now? Like, um, why, like, I guess this feeds in also the considering newer tests. Like, what are the newer methodologies in academia that this foundation is maybe looking at or one of the the things that we're looking at is the we're working with a psychologist in New Mexico um, his name I'm Rex Young um, who's looking at like what different areas of the brain light up taking different tests and looking at like what other characteristics those areas of the brain govern Mm -hmm. so looking to see I mean, you know, this is scientific in the sense of, you know, it's quantifiable, but also looking at the biological component um, of what we're doing. And then we're also doing genetic studies with twins, um, trying to determine, you know, what the hereditary relationship of the aptitudes is. Mm. Sort of the, and then I know they're also looking at, like, can I give my child a bunch of Legos and make her have spatial aptitudes? <laughs> you know, um, you know, is is it possible to influence it? So, yeah, no, it's, I, and it, it's always a slippery slope because right. you hear all the like uh, infamous stories in psychology of parents or one person who really wants to uh, influence or condition right, people yeah. a certain way. Like I just saw Three Identical Strangers, right? That yeah. documentary, yeah, which just blew my mind, yeah. Um, of putting three triplets into different socioeconomic right, yeah. backgrounds and to see how they how they did in life. Yeah, and there yeah, there's the ethics of that, and you know. Um, Definitely. Yeah, but it you know we're focusing primarily on that, but the biological components, and we've had you know 
Rex Young has come to make presentations to our trustees about what he's learned about, um, because it's also like, are we measuring what we think we're measuring? Um, it gets back to sort of the pitch discrimination. Pretty sure that's a measure of you're listening to sound, but it also influences these other things. So why is that? Mm-hmm. Where does that is that part of the brain link? Is that you know what's the story there? So awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, I'm really curious about what these tests might look like in a different culture or testing yeah, different languages. That would be fascinating because we have not really done that. Uh, we get periodically questions from people in other countries who want to develop tests, and you know some of them, you know, pitch discrimination is going to be the same kind of no matter what. But something right. like analytical reasoning or word association um, would be very different in a different language because there's also different constructions of how you do sentences, and and then also the cultural issues because one of the things that I would like to do, particularly like with inductive reasoning and the pictures that we use for that is there a cultural bias to some of those right. pictures? Because I actually think there is, but I don't have any proof of it. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd have to design a study to to take a look at that, um, which I just haven't done yet. But. Definitely. Or even potentially the vocabulary. Yeah. Again, and like who has right. access to learning that. Right. I mean, there's free dictionaries now, but it would be well, interesting to like kind of detail a study that charts how people acquire vocabulary. Right. I don't know if those exist or not. Well, I don't know if we have any, but like when I was a librarian, I took a class on literacy acquisition. And of course, I mean, the big thing on literacy acquisition is how many books are in your house and do people, you know, do people read to you? Um, And then also the, because I recently read a study that was about, you know, people of higher education, higher socioeconomic levels, you know, like when I had a baby, I constantly talked to her. Because, you know, a, I talk a lot and B, you know, she's a baby, she's cute. You know, it's like, oh, look at the little duckies on your shirt and whatever. And that people in lower socioeconomic status, they're like running to their other two jobs right. and don't have the same time to devote to constantly talking to their child. Um, and then also like the level of daycare, you know, what somebody in a higher socioeconomic status can pay a whole lot more versus somebody who's in a lower one who may, you know, and maybe... Mm-hmm. Maybe there's this their grandma who's doing 10 other things, you know, so that, so yeah, that, I mean, that definitely, because mm-hmm. that literacy component, because I mean, the best way to build vocabulary is to read. And if your reading is not at the level where it should be, then your vocabulary is not going to be at the level. I mean, that's just, and obviously you can learn vocabulary without reading. You can bust out your flashcards and study for the SAT. Um, but it's going to be much more organic right. if you're a reader. So, Yeah. And where you go to school is influenced so much by your geographic location, right. um, which is influenced by a whole host of other factors. Right. And then being in a certain area, you know, interesting, a lot of what taxes fund schools. Right. And then the more, the better funded schools are in the more wealthier areas. Right. Because they can pay more taxes. Or Precisely. Well. And then, you know, the parents who can choose to send their child to private school often do. So then there's there's the disparity of their, you know, because sometimes kids, when they're learning together, can help raise each other up, and then, but if you remove the kids who have the advantages from the, from the school of kids who don't have the advantages, and then you're also, you're just perpetuating them. 
Um, and the privatization of schools and charter schools is a whole nother. Right. Yeah. I mean, everything. Yeah. No, we, <laughs> we go on. We're going to be here all day. <laughs> um, there's something I was going to say. No, I can't remember what it was. Um, like our Texas offices, we have two, Houston and Dallas, and their vocabulary scores are consistently lower than any other office in the country. Mm. And I, again, I don't know exactly why, yeah. but I think that's really interesting. And of course, like we're the only one in the Southeast and we draw from pretty much the entire Southeast. We get a lot of Mississippi, Alabama, um, Tennessee, North Carolina tends to split between us and DC, um, but we, you know, South Carolina, parts of Florida. Um, so, I mean, our vocabulary tends to be pretty much the same as everybody else's, but Texas's is lower. And again, I don't, I don't know why, but I think that that would be interesting to pursue. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just an interesting history from like being a corporate structure from GE, mm -hmm. then being in academia because um, Johnson O'Connor took this to the Human Engineering Laboratory at Stevens Institute of Technology mm -hmm. in New Jersey, mm -hmm. and then it became a nonprofit right. later. Um, so it's a very we it's a very interesting intersection that this foundation yeah. sits at. Yes, uh, yeah, because you know we're a nonprofit, but we're you know we charge money for our services, and we're not the kind of nonprofit that most people think of. Because it's much more, because really, I mean, you know, we're a research foundation. Um, and basically, you know, people are paying to be our test subjects. Um, I mean, that's the consent form that people sign. You can use our, my tests for your, for your research. Um, but it is also, because I, you know, I tell people, part of my job is confidence building. I mean, a lot of my job is confidence building. Um, and we see... Why it's not socioeconomically diverse? It is age diverse. It you know, because um, we get a lot of people who are you know they're empty nesters and they're going back to school or they're you know what this guy I had in here yesterday was 55 and sold his business and trying to figure out what to do next and then and you know we have people from Greenwood, Mississippi and we have people from uh, from Atlanta and Charlotte and mm -hmm. Memphis and Nashville and you know. So it's, it's interesting work. And we also do, you know, like we're, we just, we're in the process of doing a test of physical therapists to see if there's any consistent pattern of aptitudes for physical therapists. But one of the things that has happened, you know, like we used to give out a list of, you know, these are the three careers that are the best fit for you. We stopped doing that for two reasons. One, because people would think, oh, these are the only three careers I can do. Well, okay, no, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> these are examples. And B, the workforce is changing so much right. that, I mean, you know, you're likely to have a job that does not yet exist mm -hmm. um, at some point in your life. So if you just looked at those three things, they're not going to keep up with how fast it evolves. Um, and so that's why we try to focus more on the roles and the activities that you're more likely to enjoy doing than here's the job title. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I do maybe want to dive in a little more to that. Uh, because, like, this was formed in an, econ in an economy where, like, workers had, like, pretty much, like, if you got hired at a company, you're working there for the rest of your life. Right. And yeah. wages are better now. Like, they're, or would grow much more right. now, or then, yeah. than um, now they're very stagnant um, right. for our generation. I guess most workers now, it's a lot of precarious jobs. Mm -hmm. that are very unstable moving from one thing to the other so I mean how how do you think 
one, how do you kind of factor that in, like, mm-hmm. personally advising people? And two, how is the organization trying to evolve with mm-hmm. the changing world? One of the things, well, one of the things that I personally do, I spend a lot of time researching careers and trends and what's growing and what's not and what's new and that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of other people here do that too. I think the foundation is trying to do a similar thing is sort of looking at the big picture career growth and also different ways we can give the aptitudes. Um, you know, is there a way to, cause we've tried to replicate some of the tests on a computer and they, you know, some of them you can do wiggly block. You can't mm-hmm. cause it's a different thing to look at the wiggly block image on the computer than it is to physically do it in your hands. Um, and so it's looking at that, but it's also trying to keep up with these career validation studies. You know, like we're looking at project management, which was not a career anybody did 15 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, or logistics and supply chain. You know, that, nobody had heard of that 20, yeah. uh, 20 years ago. So it's looking at, all right, what does that entail? What, what do you actually do all day if you work in those jobs? And what are, how do we extrapolate that from the things that we know for certain? Um, right. Yeah. Because I know just from University of Tennessee Knoxville, like they just had pretty recently the supply yeah. chains major and my sister works in that now. Mm-hmm. Um, but when she got her MBA, um, like that didn't really exist. But yeah. She was able to learn it. Um, um, but that's, I think that must be why all this talk of human engineering mm-hmm. is propping, propping back up again because right. there is so much unknown, unknown, change that's happening so quickly. Right. Well, and it's also the understanding that there are certain things that we can build a machine to do. There's always going to have to be some human element to do some part of it. Because it's like, with these tests, there are a lot of people who score like 65th. So if we just spit out a report, the computer's going to go, oh, that's average. Well, okay, I'm sitting here talking. I looked at the test, I know what, you know, all right, that was two tenths of a second away from a high score. There's a, the human element of understanding, all right, this is going to shift just a little bit. Um, You know, so that getting an understanding of what the, the human factor is amidst the much more robust machinery um, than there was, you know, when Johnson O'Connor first started these tests, it was basically, we had a factory assembly line. There was a part of the line where people had to use their hands. We need to figure out what's going to maximize efficiency there. And then he figured out a way there's part of the line where they have to use a tool. And the people who were high in the tool, or in the hands, are not necessarily high in the tool. And then it became, all right, we've turned all these people away as factory assembly line workers, but maybe they're really good bookkeepers. So let's, you know, um, yeah, let's yeah. figure that out. Um, but it's also thinking about you know because i'm certain there are aptitudes we are not measuring but Hmm. you know and it's are there ways to measure them or is that something that's sort of outside the scope um and then also the other thing i emphasize you know what we do is a piece is i'm there'll be people who score perfectly like doctors who they'll tell me oh no i fainted the side of blood well, okay, then you're not going to do that. Uh, or, you know, you'd be a great elementary school teacher. I hate kids. All right. Well, we're going to, you know, let's, tra- yeah, exactly. Let's translate that into some other way. Cause that's the other thing too. Like if somebody gets teaching, what they think of is 
public school teaching. And I'm like, well, no, this could be coaching. It could be, you know, teaching, you know, training courses at the corporate level. It could be counseling. It could be, you know, any number of things mm-hmm. that fall under that rubric that people just don't know. Yeah. And a lot, I mean, and a lot of what we do is make people aware of things they didn't know existed. Because mm-hmm. I have to be like, you know, if you're good at math in high, in high school, everybody tells you to be an engineer. If you're good at science, they tell you to be a doctor. If you're good at humanities, you're supposed to be a lawyer. Boom. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, there are, you know, a million careers that a lot of people just don't know exist. Because you know it exists if your parents do it or somebody you know does it or, you know, everybody wanted to be a CSI when that came out on TV. Yeah. Uh, but it's sort of helping people think about the flexibility of... There are all these possibilities that exist in the world. Right, and it's it's difficult because the teaching so much in that is to have order. Mm-hmm. Like, I just want, I want an answer to this, mm-hmm. like, question that carries all this um, anxiety and right. angst. And then, again, if you're not in a certain place, like, you're very much like, all right, how do I get, how do I move up? How do right. I, like, how do I make a more comfortable life if right. I'm coming from, you know, poverty? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. That, Do you have any questions, Scotty? I know I've been. No, you're fine. Um, well, I guess a, a one small question is like for people who don't have access to like tests like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you guys are you know you're writing a grant to try to reach out to lower sure. socioeconomic you know people of lower socioeconomic status. Um, but for people who just don't have access, like, what advice would you have for you know them figuring out? You know, how to pay yeah. attention to what things they have high aptitudes. What I tell people to do, it's, and actually I stole this from a, from a website called Ask a Manager, which everybody should read because it's the most awesome thing about the work world. <laughs> but it's, think about what you can't not do. You know, what do you do even if you, you know, if you just, if you just can't help yourself. You know, like the woman who writes this blog was like, you know, in my first job, my job was not writing and editing, but I had to do it. And, you know, I'm a busybody. I have to give people advice. So, you know, I have to tell people what I think they ought to do with their lives. So I might as well get paid to do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, I mean, I work with people who are like, you know, my entire life, you know, there are four zillion Lego kits in my closet because all I wanted to do as a kid was build stuff. Um, so that's what I tell people to do is like think about what you you're just know. driven to do and like what were you doing when you were you know, think about when you were the happiest in your life what were you doing and you know and if somebody tells me it's oh I was training for a bike race I'm like alright so maybe you don't want to be a professional cyclist but like what was it about that that you really mm-hmm. loved was it working toward this goal was it the camaraderie of the team you were with was it getting to be outside you know what was it so how do we um how do we figure out where to go from there? So that that's what I tell people. Pairing that with all the other factors. Of right. Yeah. Life. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, there's some you know, like somebody who can't not build. Well, okay, maybe they're an engineer. Maybe they're a mechanic. Maybe they're an architect. You know, I. There are lots of ways to. I mean, there are people with similar patterns who are not going to be happy in the same job mm-hmm. because of the other factors that go into it. Hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, I know with a lot of kids I talked to as a college advisor, mm-hmm. it was, um, I wasn't sure exactly what to do with, you know, students who were very 
hands-on, though. I mean, our school is really good about um, trying to line them up with apprenticeship programs or other trade schools. Um, but it's also like my anxiety toward it was one, I don't know that area right. so much, and two, like I don't know in the next coming years like what's going to be automated and what's not. True. Um, I just don't know how to like give you a good career plan without kind of right. going into a lot of nuance, which high school students and particularly maybe kids yeah. who go to the who are like mm. are more into welding or like you know they don't right really, that's when their eyes start to glaze over right it's like all right i gotta just hand you some papers so you can yeah look over well and that one of the things that has happened is sort of the emphasis on a college degree is that the vocational education i mean like there's a dearth of plumbers and electricians and you know and i I had a plumber in Nashville that made more money than his brother who was a surgeon because there was such a demand for people who could, were good plumbers, um, you know. And it is, you know, looking at those apprenticeship programs and looking about, you know, what do you, are you more interested in, you know, electricity or, you know, mm -hmm. what are you, but yeah, you know, you're right. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about like dental hygienist work. You can make a ton of money doing that. Um, that if that's something that you can find satisfying, then that's a really good path to go on. Um, we're looking at, you know, I look a lot at the two-year degree programs because mm -hmm. Tennessee now is that thing where they'll pay for two years. Um, and I'll have right. people who are like, you know, whose parents are like, all right, what would, we live in Tennessee, what's the two-year program my daughter should do? Right. Well, here are the three that I think are a pretty good fit. Thank you so much oh, for sure. letting me talk your oh, ear off. absolutely. It's, Glad to do it. This is just really fascinating stuff. Well, I think so. Yeah. Johnson O'Connor is a resource for you now for the rest of your life. You can call and ask us questions literally forever. I had someone in here this summer who tested in 1980 and wanted to know how to use his aptitudes in his retirement. You can do that. Mm -hmm. You can also read through all this and call me and ask me questions. Or if there's something you want to ask, you know, feel free. Call my card will go home with you. Send me an email. I'm happy to answer questions literally at any time. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes a year we're a little busier, so it might take me longer, but mm -hmm. I will answer them. Um, we do free vocabulary testing for life, so if you want to show off how awesome your vocabulary is, you can come in here and take a test. Yeah. If you lose this and you want another copy, there's another copy for $10, which just covers our office fees for pulling it off a hard drive and sending it to mm -hmm. you. You can come in for a follow-up discussion at any time. Within a year, that's free. After a year, it costs $100. First step should always be to call or send me an email. I can probably answer your question without charging you $100. Um, <laughs> I do that a lot. Um, so any other questions? So my final question to you. Yes. Um, Meredith Hand. Um, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I was at a coffee shop where instead of asking your name, they wanted to know your dream job. Oh, wow. um, and I mean, I have sort of the two dream jobs. You uh -huh. know, one, obviously, I want to write my best-selling screenplay. And actually, I want to be J.K. Rowling. That's my real. That's what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, my other one is the other thing I would really like to do. This uh, this nonprofit that I volunteer for. It's Georgia-based. I would like to go start it in other states. That would be my other thing. Awesome. What's the nonprofit called? It's called Path to Shine. Path to Shine. Yeah, and it's you know, like I said, it's kindergarten through fifth graders. We help them learn to read. 
you were like I've worked with the same girls for two years and now they're now in middle school and like I could see them cool. you know go from C's and spelling to A's and that I loved. That's it's incredible. I hope you hope you do both of those. Thank you. I hope so too. Yeah. I turn around and get told I should tone it down with the owner who hoping now that I'm closing my open mouth and I'm holding the dope it's time to get hold of the whole amount of the show and the older crowd you'll be holding me sold them out most of vocal bonds are get broken they're broken out of the bone but they go in out and they roll in the hey everyone uh thanks for sticking around to this wrap up of this really really long episode I want to address the question right now that you're probably all thinking Uh, Was this worth it? And I would have to say yes, if you can afford it, for a couple reasons. Um, It is a pretty steep price point for most people. But I think in the context of two things, it's this test uh, that the Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation provides is really valuable. The first is that the cost of 800 bucks... um, really flattens over time. So what do I mean by that? I mean that this test could save you a lot of time looking for the right career or right job for you, and that's pretty invaluable. I think, you know, if I could pay 800 or 900 bucks to potentially save two or three years of my life, yeah, I think that's a kind of a no-brainer in, that ter- in those terms. Um, the second context, I would say, you know, maybe be a little less abstract economist-like, is that in this new economy, the new information economy, you need to know how to package yourself in a way where you're confident about what value you can add to uh, a company with your labor. Um, you have to know your human capital to kind of increase their capital. Now you know, morally right or not, I tend to think not, um, it is a necessary thing to do. Um, and that's critical to survival in uh, in our whole uh, society and world right now is knowing how to package yourself and knowing specifically how you benefit uh, or add value to a company. I mean, that's the whole point of work. So to get any job or to get a a foot in the door with the connections you get at a college like I did at Davidson you then have to know how to um, argue for yourself you need to know that yeah I know I do have I do generate a lot of ideas or I do know how to think quickly or do tasks quickly um, to break it down like that and I think this test is a really good way of helping give you the tools for that um, in a very easy very scientific way that you don't feel like you're lying about yourself to sell yourself, but you're selling yourself in very objective terms, uh, based on science, based on what you know to be true, what you've always felt, but that subjective feeling is made more objective. And I think the biggest reason the tests help so much with that is because they are really accurate. There were only two things I really disagreed with on the tests. One, my subjective personality that really needs to enjoy work I think I think everybody kind of needs that I'm still not convinced 
there are two categories for that, but I do concede that uh, I think other people have a better time than me of just uh, treating a job like a job, getting a paycheck, and enjoying who you're with. Um, you know, I kind of envy that and kind of hope to be more like that, I think, but I guess embrace who I am too. And the second thing would be that I always thought I was better at math um, as a kid than I am now. Like, I could be a human calculator, do a lot of stuff in my head than I did, and then my parents would always say that so but maybe that has gotten worse over time or maybe the kids in my class back then as a kid just weren't that good (laughs) but anyway everything else was pretty dead on I think but uh so yeah email me if this doesn't sound like me at all and you think oh no they got you so wrong Ryan (laughs) um thank you again for listening to this hope to put out more hopefully shorter episodes soon um yeah, and if you have any questions, concerns, feedback, ideas, you can email us at growuppod95 at gmail.com. I'll leave that in the description. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram for any news, updates, episode releases. Hope you all will tune in again. So fly with it, not 90% of the time each night Finding a way to supply my desire Getting a plane to go fly my kite It's driving me, right? No, 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 no way that forgot is Gina Usually only leave I'm in the time and the place And the sequence of dreams, huh? What's that? Rap, rap, and de-distract and detach Actual fast, me jack Canopy, we track and relax Cool down with Malawi Golden ounces in the back Got your new sound and your mind You blowing out winds in the dash It's that Africa Tragic that we will get branded with all of these tags And the cannibalism is bad Gaggling geese and the beef in the van And that's so grand and that's so sweet Raise your hands before we speak Give me the delicacies Get in your head like a delicate knee Slice